from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. I am your host, John Small, the editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur. And you might recognize my guest, Kim Miles, from her star turn on HGTV, where after winning season two of the show Design Star, she went on to appear on such shows as Homemade Simple, Miles of Style, and HGTV Showdown. Well, now Kim has a new show on a new network, and it's called High Design, and you can find it on Discovery+. And the premise of the show is brilliant. I wish I had thought of it. She finds mom-and-pop cannabis dispensaries across the country that are in much need of some design love. And then, extreme makeover style, she just transforms them and makes them into shops that you really want to visit and buy stuff in. So Kim joins me today to talk about her really interesting entrepreneurial journey, starting off as a hairstylist, becoming a reality TV show winner, and ultimately becoming a TV show personality. She's also going to share some tips on how to transform your own retail business to better serve your customers. Kim Miles, welcome to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Nice to be here. So great to have you. I can already feel your energy. You're waking me up. It's great. So <laughs> uh, glad. <laughs> all right. So before we get into this great show, High Design, I want to talk a little bit about your backstory, your origin story, because you have such an interesting journey. Take me back to your career. You were you were a hairstylist, right? Let's go back to like 2000, mid 2000s here. Take me back and how kind of the transformation in your in your life and your career. Yeah. So I've always been a creative and I've always been an entrepreneur. I mean, literally my entrepreneur, my career in entrepreneurship began when I was 13. I created and sold my first line of products and I was harvesting twigs and drying flowers from my yard. And then I was gluing them and assembling them into little, I called it fairy furniture. So it was like thrones and chairs for fairies. And I sold it to all of my local uh, garden shops as little planters. So 13 is when I was like, I'm going to do things. <laughs> so it started then. And then, yeah, I, uh, life brought me to New York. I became a hairdresser in New York. And all along, I've been an esthete and somebody who really, I mean, you know, loves to look at things that are pretty. I enjoy a nice visual feast, right? Self-taught designer, but I watched on HGTV. They had a show called Design Star. And it was an elimination competition back when those things were fresh and new. And <laughs> I watched season one and I was like, oh my God, I think that I should, that. I, yeah, because I'm rearranging my apartment all the time. I sew new curtains. I make new lighting. I change the furniture around. Like I wasn't buying new stuff, but I was always creating and like cross-pollinating, reassembling, mixing up my environment. So I applied. The rest is history. I won. <laughs> so after you won, was that was that a huge life changer for you in terms of oh like? Oh my god! Yeah, it legit like in every possible way because you know within two weeks of winning, I was a New Yorker. I was living in Queens with my husband. Within two weeks of winning, I was relocated to Los Angeles and I was starring in my own show. I was in pre production. And that was the prize. When you won, you got your own series and a car. So I had my own series for three seasons, but no, it was two weeks. It was instant, instant shift. So, okay. So once you got you, so you started getting eight, once you were made, once you won Design Star, HGTV 
put you in charge of a, of a show, right? Your next show. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh oh. no, no. I, you know what? It's just so funny to hear you say it because I'm like, it sounds like it only took five minutes, but right, right. there was a lot book. of negotiating. Like, and Yeah. Like, you know, this is a 13 year career at this point. <laughs> so for high design, that actually was its own thing. I'm a cannabis lover and enthusiast. It has changed my life in the most positive ways ever since I discovered it. And I really felt like I saw a hole in the market. Here I was, I was a member at multiple dispensaries in California when you had to be a membership, right? Like you're a member before it was rec. And uh, I was in dispensaries where I might be getting, you know, great service or I might be getting good product, but I was not getting a good environment. And it felt like it made no sense because I knew how much money I was spending. <laughs> and it was like, this is retail. Even if it's private, it's retail. It doesn't make sense. And that was seven years ago. So it's taken me seven years to get to here to talk to you, right? Because why? Because So you had this idea that you would go in basically and make over these mom and pop dispensaries that were not particularly customer friendly. And I know exactly what you're talking about living out here, even though now, of course, it's completely a different world oh, uh, in the so last five now, years. Man. Yeah, it's oh crazy. my God. But you remember, you know. I like, know. It's just like, yeah. Unbelievable, the change. But you were an enthusiast. How did you use cannabis in your, in your own personal life, like creativity, creatively or how? Oh yeah. I find that it is the umami of my life. It, it, you know, when I discovered it, it was an instant balm and answer to my chronic anxiety as well as chronic insomnia. So both of those things were instantly regulated and solved. And that was when I was 20 was when I first smoked cannabis. And so I never looked back and it's continued to be a love affair. And absolutely. I mean, now that I'm <laughs> old and jaded, I'm like, no, I have my certain sativas. I, I'm very kind of, I wouldn't call myself a snob, but I am very specific about what works for me. What works for you? I'm curious. Do you mind? What are some, some, what are some of the strains that work for you? Okay. So, uh, and it always shifts as we know, right? Because you get used to certain things. I tend to always, if it's daytime and I'm not, you know, to be clear, if I am on camera, I'm not high. That's something that I should say to everybody. Why is <laughs> that? Because it's just too hard to focus and yeah. I, it's not where I, cannabis for me is a relaxation. It is an opening of my mind's eye. It is an expansion of my visual world. It is hanging with friends, eating a meal. It is not necessarily doing my work. <laughs> work requires real focus. And I haven't met the sativa yet that allowed me to do both in the capacity that I need to be firing, right? So yeah, no, but when I'm just in my life, I've, Jack Hair is always a classic. That's kind of always in the mix, but lately it's been Durban Poison, a little, uh, what was it? Strawberry OG lately, always into lemon haze, anything with lemon, clementine, mm, delicious. But then evening, I've become like super obsessed with the Dog Walkers brand. Yeah, I love that. I love the uh, marketing of the Dog Walker. Right. It's so smart. So smart. And I have a big rescue dog that I walk. They are the perfect little minis. It's like a mini size. So for the perfect size to walk, it's a pre-roll for people who don't know. And it's, it takes the length of a dog walk is the idea. That's the idea. So super smart and tasty. Tasty. Yeah. I, I don't know. I've been moving away from indicas, much more into the hybrids and sativas. And you're a flower person. Always flower. Not for lack of trying. Although, shout out to Squires. Squires, 
out of uh, Maine. They do a a drinkable. It's an elixir, basically a cannabis elixir that is, uh, you know, RSO only locally sourced fruits and vegetables, shelf stable naturally, right? And it is amazing for sleep. That works for me. But for me, it's like liver process, edibles. I'm sleepy kind no matter what. Like I need the blood brain barrier of smoking to get the effect that I like. And I also just like the instantaneous. Yeah, me too. I don't like waiting around. All right. Back to your entrepreneurial journey. (laughs) But this is good. It's good for content. What are you smoking, smoking, John? I am so high right now. No, I'm I I, I'll well, we'll get into that in another conversation. I have to remain objective, I guess, as a journalist. Yes, of course. All right. So you have this idea, but for seven years, it took you to get this idea on the air and is that because there just wasn't there was still the stigma around cannabis or yeah well it was multiple things i had the idea on a hike with a girlfriend of like i don't understand how it is that the retail environment does not match my ticket and she was like uh and i was like right it's crazy someone should redesign these space someone should make a show about the (gasps) me is it me? <laughs> but that great to want to make a show. The thing that I can do really effectively is helm a show. But even as somebody who enjoyed cannabis, I didn't feel like I had the chops to represent for the industry. And for me, I love cannabis. I love the industry. Normalization, legalization. These are my agendas, right? Like I feel like if I have a platform, that's where I can shine a light and kind of hope and, and hopefully shift a needle. That required that I stop my life and go into cannabis because <laughs> I've been purchasing, but it's what I'm going to come in and say, I can make over your space. I don't even know what the fuck I'm talking about. Excuse my French, but like, yeah, I, I needed to know what I'm talking about. That's very important. So I took a year and I started as a bud tender and I worked my way up into management so that I could know, like, what is it to be a bud tender? What is it tenders? Like, what does, what is, what do you deal with? Like, what is it like boots on the ground? Where did you do this in California? Okay, so I did it with MedMen. Oh, wow. I know MedMen. We know it well. What a story. So it was fascinating because I was with them for a year and it was the year that Cali went wreck, right? So I was with them for that transition and ended up assistant managing the Beverly Hills location, which I don't think is open anymore. Is that the one on Robertson? Which one? On Robertson? Yeah. Yeah. I drive by it almost every day. I, I don't, I can't tell because it's boarded up. Because of the, because uh, I think they got they had during the kind of L.A. Um, protest, they got they got some. But um, all right. So you did that. That's I, it's such great advice for entrepreneurs if they want to get into the business to kind of like. So now, you know, every facet is certainly of retail, right? Being a bud tender, you, you being a bud tender and then being a manager of a store, you saw all the ins and outs. What surprised you? about that experience about retail that you didn't know before going in? Well, you know what? I think it's just a bit a real, an exercise in empathy because I feel like the germ of my concept for the show came from my judgment about how craptastic these spaces were. And yes, I was working for MedMen. They had huge financing. <laughs> Money was no object at the time. They were leading the way. They were the first ones to be like the apple of weed, right? That's what their, their store presentation was about. So I was watching something that was booming and I was watching it scale and not necessarily effectively, but I was experiencing scale and what that can look like if it isn't effective. And that was with a big corporation. And what it did was it gave me empathy because I was watching people with money and resources struggle to maintain compliance. Compliance. I mean, the nitty gritty of it is so hard. And then you get into staffing. I don't know if you know, but sometimes... People who love weed aren't always the ones who show up on time. (laughs) 
<laughs> I have not found that in my experience. I'm glad that you're telling me this for the first I time. I just want people to understand. Yeah, like I'm a type A. Not everybody is, right? So listen, workforce, and that's honestly, that's just not just cannabis industry. That's across the industry, right? Like you're- That's millennials. But, <laughs> sorry, I can I say that. Said it, not me. I know, sorry, millennials. <laughs> but yeah, I know it's- they're on their own but schedule. you know what I mean? Like people are like, what? You're paying what? And I'm going to work for what? What? So just kind of having staffing issues consistently. Watching how quickly vendors came and went, right? Like, yeah, on, on the retail side, sure. You're looking at your vendors, you're looking at your numbers, you're seeing, are they making the numbers? Do they deserve shelf space? I couldn't believe it. I was like, I'd be selling something and it would be popular. And the next week they were out of business or they were out of funding or they had been caught because they were spraying the gummies versus like a whole host of things. But I feel like, listen, the, the challenges, entrepreneurship, the challenges of small business, the challenge of retail brick and mortar is so massive. And then you add cannabis (laughs) and cannabis takes every one of those issues that are standard and universal and pops it up. Like for example, uh, one of the shops that I redid for the show, we redid it. I am currently working with them again right now because we redid the space and then the state came in and said, this is great, but we've decided statewide that now you have to have a vault. So you now have to bump out into your retail space, build a wall. Like, so you're losing retail, build a vault that has to be in compliance. And that's going to change what, how that retail space and everything on the retail floor now has to be vaulted at the end of the night. Right. Which changes your display. It changed everything shifts. So I'm like, look, they got how much time out of the space I gave them six months <laughs> before the state was like, Hey, now you have to do this and we'll shut you down. So I'm like empathy, empathy, empathy for the mom and pop and for just what it takes to do it right, you know, and to keep it going and to be profitable because the margins, everybody feels like it's weed, it's cash. You're a millionaire. (sighs) Well, if you're trying to operate a legal facility, you are not a millionaire. (laughs) Mostly your margins are really slim. Let's not even talk about the tax. I mean, oh my God. Jonathan, we could go down this rabbit hole, but it was just like endless, no, right? It's, it's, they make, if they, they just create so many obstacles, oh, um, especially for but, small businesses. We business wonder why the black market is flourishing. Why this is such a mystery. <laughs> Come on. So yeah, no, that was really the takeaway. It was just like, I worked and I was in it and I saw at all the levels what the challenges were. And I understood that I was watching challenges being met by funding and manpower and that that is not small business in America. Right. And so my little shops that I was getting gripey about, why do I have to be in a crappy waiting room? And then I have to go through the man cage and I have, oh my God, they are just lucky to open up every day and keep it moving. And keep it moving and actually make it. Yeah. It felt like then it became like a heart mission of like, okay, it's not just a show. It's not just about the design. It's about how do I help keep people in business? This is, I understand now how this works and what the tactical advantage of having a retail space that is inviting is so important and necessary in a highly, highly billion dollar competitive industry. Especially, and not only do you have the government, you know, now you have these also uh, companies, very, very well funded, we said money, but very, very well funded MSOs moving into your neighborhood who, you know, it's it's very hard for the, for the small business. Come on, who can keep up? Who can keep up? 
Like they've got it on lock and like, I'm not even mad. I'm not even going to go hard on corporate cannabis because I know a lot of people in the business who are really love, like doing the right things. As I see, I have just chosen to focus my passion, my agenda and my platform on the mom and pop because that's what I am as an entrepreneur. I am a small business, right? So I feel like, listen, if I can, if I can, and then Discovery said, yeah, we can, we will help them have a leg up, which was amazing because you mentioned earlier the taboo. So I took a year out. I learned cannabis. I then pitched this thing for years. I pitched it for years. And people said, oh, no, the ad dollars will never be there. Federal prohibition, which makes sense. But in a streaming world, in a nonlinear world, guess what? The need for the ad dollars is not as strong. It's a subscriber base. So different way to look at the business. And I think I got in with a great company at the right time when they were like, listen, this is obvious. This is all of America wants this to be legal. <laughs> and it is fascinating pulling the curtain back on what does this tiny little niche of America look like, right? So yeah, that's how that is. Important. How do you scout the dispensaries that you're going to make over? Yeah, so <laughs> I have a fantastic casting department, I will say. That's very important. Nothing, None of this is just me doing it on my own. It's a big machine. So I have a great casting department who did such a good job on season one, um, who were, you know, reaching out and querying and, you know, making headway in the business. I know people, right? So it's really just who you know. It's six degrees of separation, finding stories. Because one of the things that was important is I felt like, you know, I really wanted to show cannabis in its breadth. And it is diverse. The stories are diverse, right? So yes, it is the money we're talking about who gets in and bangs it open and they're boom, they're in the business. It is the couple who have decided that this is their business. It is the brother and sister who have decided it's their business. It's the buddies who have decided it's their business. It's the, the guy who was formerly incarcerated wrongfully by the feds, right? Like shut down in LA, federally busted, served six years. <laughs> I mean, his story, a black man. So I'm like, look, it is social justice. I mean, cannabis is everything in my view. It is social justice. It is small business. It is family. It is building legacy wealth. It is competing against, it's David and Goliath. Like it is so- It really rich. is the American story. And it's- and, It and, is. Yeah, it really is. And sort of distilled into what America is all about. And yet, and yet it comes up against so much adversity. And yet it's so, there's nothing more apple pie and cannabis. I mean, those are the two things, nothing more American. And now that's what I want. Yeah. Baseball, apple pie and cannabis. So talk to me about some of the, there must be a common theme of like the sort of mistakes that you, that all, you know, when you walk into the dispensaries, all of them kind of make as far as design. Can you talk to me about some, so, so if somebody was listening to this, that was thinking about getting to the business or already has a dispensary, what are some of the things that right off the bat you sort of see as up, here we go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Okay. So we'll start from like egregious to like, it's just a knit I'm going to pick. So (laughs) egregious is having a completely hostile entry point. And I don't just mean design. I'm talking about staffing. I'm talking about your security. I'm talking about, you know, you can't always control where you're able to rent a space, right? There are limitations state by state where you can actually have a brick and mortar. 
Canada shop. So you, yeah, sometimes you're going to be in a strip mall. It's not going to be the nicest spot, right? But making a friendly entrance. I'm consistently surprised by people who are not in the business, people in my life who, even though it's recreational and it's legal, are scared to walk into a dispensary. They are completely intimidated. It's fascinating to me because I just feel like, but it's a show, just, it's a, are you scared to walk into the grocery store? Like, what? do you, are you scared to walk into the liquor store? It's the same, but there, that taboo is so built in that there is a barrier of entry in multiple ways for so many customers. And so if you reinforce it by putting a, a very armed guard in front of there, and then you have exactly the scary looking <laughs> guy, sometimes like ex-military. We see, I mean, you know that. I know that I've seen guy. it. Doesn't smile. I don't need the guard to be chatting. I don't need the guard to be on his phone either. You see that a lot. So like, it's that, right? So I just kind of feel like optics in a big way before we even get into the design of it, of just like, look, how does it feel? Is it an inviting space for people to come into if it's their first time? That's a big deal. Entering the space, people do not work with a merchandise hierarchy. So I see a lot of spaces, we all do. I mean, just think about, it's not even just the shops. Think about all of the shops you know, not just the ones that I did for the show. How many shops do you walk into even if you love the shop? but it is a cacophonous visual environment of brands, right? Like the curation of the brands, there's just so much packaging. It's not anybody's fault, but like it's all different packaging. It's the nature of the beast. But you think about a liquor store and the layout. If you walk into a liquor store, you can expect the vodkas are going to be one place. The rum is going to be one, right? It doesn't always track and apply to cannabis because we're like, by effect, by strain, by how to, how edible versus what it's nuanced. But I do feel like, yeah, I am amazed at how many times I walk in and it is absolute chaos. And you have no sense of just like user experience where to even begin to look for the thing that you are interested in buying. So I feel like that's a big mistake. And then the knit I want to pick just because your friends paint and you hang the art on the wall your space is not also a gallery. I can't tell you how many people are like, well, it's also an art gallery. And so not only is it just a tons of packaging, brands, the necessary pieces of retail, in order to fill the space, which I understand, and to make it feel personal, people just throw up art. And it is not always good art. And it is not always saying what they think it's saying. And I understand the impulse to just get rid of the white wall and put something up there that's vibrant, but it is not doing what you think it's doing, is what I would say. You're so much better off for your listeners. Looking at what your branding is. What is your brand? What is the logo? What is the front-facing visual? That is your map. Everything you do in this space, you start from that. That's your touch point. Who are you as a brand? What have you already created? And then that should be extrapolated throughout the space, right? So the disconnect often between, you know, the first episode of of High Design was uh, the Honey Bears, Honey Bear Apothecary in Craig, Colorado. And they had so much right. Honey Bear, you don't even have to see the logo, right? It's evocative. Honey Bear. Yeah, it's a a good name. They already got the good name. That's a good name. So like they already were kind of ahead of the game and they had applied a lot of these kind of visual principles of their brand throughout the space. But then there were just places where the ball got dropped and it's not their fault. I want to say that. I'm not here to shame the small business person. I have nothing but love. It's why I do the show. (laughs) They dropped the ball because they were trying to spin eight other balls all day, every day. Like, right. So 
these disconnects happen. And I feel like, look, even if you do nothing but paint the space in one of the colors of your brand, that is a small start into making a space that feels a little more cohesive. And then, yeah, just the curation piece. I promise you, if you have 800 SKUs, 20% 20% of them aren't selling. <laughs> it's just because, is it because people, it's hard for people to find it because of the way it's, I know that there's one I go into. Yeah. I mean, it. I guess it just depends. You have a, a preference of the way you curate because like I go to, there's a dispensary I go to here in La Brea, I guess. I, well, I guess I could say it's called Wonder Bread. And do you know Wonder Bread? I don't know Wonder Bread, but you know what? This is, it's like the third time's the charm. It's the third time I've heard the name. The <laughs> next time in LA, I need to check them out. Yeah, okay. it's cool. It's yeah. very, um, it's very curated and it's very well thought out, the design, but, but, but it's definitely like, you know, they've got the flower section, the tincture section, like it's that, like it's by consuming, but by the way you consume, is that always the best way to go or are there different options? Like what are, what are you, what's your thought? I mean, I wish I could say that I knew what the answer is. And I just feel like it's such a malleable thing. It also depends on who your customer is, right? Because you can have medical customers and you Wonder Bread is a recreational customer. Right. So when you have, let's say, a combination rec medical, that is a completely different customer base, right? So I'm like that. I feel like it's, again, the inherent challenges of this particular product is because it's like, this is what it's speaking to. Personally, where I am today, and if you ask me tomorrow, I might feel differently. I'm just saying. Today, I feel like uh, by method of consumption is a really clear, easy map for the general public to understand in a space. They're used to understanding that in every other retail environment, right? If you go to Target, the shoes are in one area, right? The baby stuff's in it. Like your already brain is already trained. So I feel kind of like, I think that's a great thing. I think that's important. But then I also feel like, you know, top shelf, bottom shelf. That's another layer and piece, right? What, what, you know, so what your quality personally, I'm somebody who likes things that are really, really, I'm flower. So I need that flower to be really clean. So I'm looking for quality. I'll pay more to know where my flower is coming from, that it doesn't have pesticides. Right. So I'm like, there's, I am that consumer. There's also the consumer that's like, uh, I don't know. I'm just in for one (laughs) pre-roll. I have a party to go to tonight. I just want to pre-roll. So I'm like, listen, I think the needs are are profound as far as like how you have to answer the needs of the clients who are coming in and make a space that is friendly, but also comprehensible and navigable, right? And I think the challenges are always there. Someone who I think is doing it really well is recently in uh, Seattle and Dockside is doing a really interesting job. What do they do that's so interesting? Well, the shop, I think they have two shops in Seattle and I was near the marina for uh, any people in Seattle who are listening. So that particular shop, the back wall are pull shelves and cabinets. So it's just a clean wall, but it has handles on it. And then they pull it out. The bud tenders pull it out. And that is how they are fulfilling your order. So it's all right there, but then they can shut it away. And it is for like the big, it pulls it out. It's this huge building, right? So they have their systems. For me, it just does like the non-client facing piece. I was like, oh, that's freaking brilliant because there can be somebody behind those shelves stocking consistently, right? So really smart use of space. But walking in just as a client, super friendly environment, really friendly, competent, professional security guard. 
walk in, I can tell what I'm supposed to look at. I am guided on the left-hand wall. There is like an eye level run of glass shelving that is kind of like top shelf flower and all their flower is local. So you know what I mean? Like that's here. And then on the side, that's the wall, but on the side there were floating retail environments, right? So like kind of like islands and that had consumables and, or, you know, edibles, tinctures. So it was clean. It was edited. The fact that it was only local flower, like very, very, very curated. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the shop that isn't like everything's good because it's not. <laughs> that you, you want them to help you. Yeah. Make that decision unless you know. Yeah. So they, I think are doing it really uh, They did it on that day. I thought that was a really interesting way. But like I said, man, like it, it, the, the challenges are so consistent and they are shifting at all times. Like I spoke to you about the one that I'm working on. That's like the state was like, well, now you need a vault. Oh, that's so hard. I mean, it's so what was the most, I mean, what has been the most challenging so far redesign you've had to do? Is there one that sticks to comes to mind? Yes. Read for madness, Palm Springs. <laughs> why? Why? <laughs> oh man. I wish I had gone because I was just in Palm Springs a few weeks ago. Well, first of all, 1600 SKUs, huge shop brands, Brand claim to fame is we carry everything. So legit, I'll allow it. <laughs> They're like, that is our bell whistle, right? We have everything. So like an emporium vibe. Uh, it was a big space. And as much as generous as Discovery has been <laughs> in funding these makeovers, a cap amount of money only goes so far to certain amounts of square feet, right? So really having to pick and choose. That's just on my end. But then we got on the ground and I'll say it, nightmare contractor. Nightmare contractor. Never in my professional career have I ever experienced anything like it ever. And cameras were rolling. Well, it makes for good TV. Oh my God. It is, it is the best episode. <laughs> if you want to see meltdowns, like the funny thing is, <laughs> Reef for Madness is the name of the shop. And they their whole thing is down the rabbit hole, Alice in Wonderland. And it happened. It came true. Like every day things would go down and I would just, I'd be like, I don't, I don't under, is this still not, what? I don't, am I speaking the same language here? Are we tired of So the challenge was really just dealing with a horrible contractor. <sighs> Bad contractor compounded by having to keep a store open while you renovate it. Yeah. That was, that's one of your challenges that you have to do because they can't shut down or they're be out of business unless you're going to pay. So it's not like I'm like, yes, I can make a ton of dust and a ton of noise. And no, I, so yeah, it was just levels and all of that compounded at reefer madness into just this sweet little nugget of batshit crazy. <laughs> and it's all on television. So check it out. <laughs> have you thought about opening up your, now that you're, you've worked in dispensaries, now you redesign dispensaries. Have you makeover dispensaries? Have you ever thought about opening your own dispensary? I know that you at one time had an ice cream. I, I was reading you one time had an ice cream story. That's it for another did interview. Deep dive I did a deep dive into, into Kim Files, but, um, which sounds really fun. I wish I had known about it. But anyway, have you thought about starting your own dispensary? Like now that you kind of see how it can be, I mean, you see the, both the good and the bad. So yes, absolutely. It, I already have the name for it. I know what it would be. I think what I feel at this point though, is that I want partners for that. That's not something that I would do on my own. I tend to be a solo artist <laughs> with all of my endeavors and the partner that I have usually is my husband, my creative partner. And then we find investors, right? Depending on what we're doing. That is such a big thing that I would be looking for partnership and co-invest. 
investors in that to make that happen. So I don't know how that would look right now, quite honestly. I feel like the laws, regulation, everything is so up in the air. I'm in New Jersey. There are limited amount of licenses that are issued. New Jersey needs you though. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and I would love for there to be a consumption lounge. That's the, the I, that's the missing piece that I left out for you. There needs to be a consumption lounge. I'm talking, I want to create an environment. So well, I was going to ask you about that. So that is sort of the next phase, I think of, and, and it's, we're starting to see it here in California with like, yeah. where are you? The green, uh, WeHo now is green. What do they call it? The green. Do they call, they have a name for it? Yeah, they do. Where did I see it? The green mile. Yeah. They've named it. It's like the green, the emeralds. Tri- yeah. Triangle, the Emerald Triangle. No, that's that's Hollywood. I think it's the Emerald Triangle because they have so many consumption lounges. Yeah, yeah, and that seems to be a thing in Vegas. It's coming to Vegas, so that is an important part for you. So, when you design these places, do you do you sort of incorporate like the idea that maybe one day down the road they'll be able to have a consumption lounge element to it? I do if the space calls for it. Reefer Madness had a consumption lounge. That's part of why it was such a hard, a heavy lift. Yeah, you know, on quite honestly, in the world of retail and commercial design, heavy traffic, you're looking at four to five years, six max use before you're going to need to refresh. And most brands should be refreshing every five years regardless. I'm not saying suddenly change your logo and no one recognizes you anymore, but you should be looking at your brand and keeping it current. So at this point, no, I don't, I, I haven't had to consider when a company would pivot into that space. Um, but moving forward into a season two, that'll be the interesting thing, you know, like we hope we get a season two. <laughs> I was going to, that was my last question. Will it be a season yeah. two? When yeah, do we know? When will we they know? Well, still waiting. All right. Well, you know, hopefully here's this the helps. thing. We could know it's television, Jonathan. So I said to you, seven years. You remember when I said that? So <laughs> I'm like, legit, Warner Brothers, I mean, massive industry news, Warner Brothers and Discovery merged. And so they are a juggernaut. And a merger means that a lot of things get put on hold. Green lights, red lights. Also means a lot of people you were working with maybe are not there anymore. They might shift over and how is it going to, how is, how are they going to structure the most competitive? I mean, they're the only one bigger than them right now is Disney, I think. So like they have all of this IP. There are a lot of moving parts. So I kind of feel like, I don't know, it could could be a year before I know. I don't know. What's your pitch for why there should be a second season? Just curious. Like how will it be different? Yeah. So second season, the pitch is we go deeper and broader. I really feel like, you know, one of the hallmarks that I'm really proud of about season one is that, you know, as a creative person, I really wanted to highlight local creators within each one of the episodes. And we had six episodes in season one and I was in Alaska. I was in Colorado. I was in Maine. I was, you know, all around. In a season two, it would be great to touch down into a state, bring my crew there, put all our gear down and just be in that state for a month and work on two to three shops in the same state. Because that time would allow me to really bring in the community, bring in all of those people, explore makers, fabricators. You know, part of what I did was tap local makers, creators, craftspeople, for each one of the shops. So I would like to deepen that story. I feel like the story of cannabis continues to change and shift. So the amount of people who are coming through and who have stories to tell, it is endless. I only scratched the surface. And yeah, more money, bigger budget, bigger so If anybody is listening, you're here. <laughs> All right, that's awesome. Well, the show is called High Design. It is on Discovery+. Plus. 
Uh, Kim Miles is an amazing host uh, within, with such a gr- I'm so glad you're doing this for the cannabis industry. And I really wish you the, the best of success. And I can't wait for season two. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me on. This oh, just it's been my pleasure. To me. Yeah. So thank you. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, head on over to greenentrepreneur.com for the latest cannabis and CBD news, thoughtful essays, tips, and insider tricks on how to succeed in the cannabis business, all that good stuff. And hey, if you like this podcast, do me a huge solid and go to wherever you may listen to your podcast and please rate and review our podcast. It does wonders for the algorithm, helps others find the podcast. Would so appreciate a review and a rating. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.